0: Good morning. Uh, glad to be back. I got a little time off, got some vacation time, and uh, some time to just kind of get settled at home. And so glad to be back today. We're in Isaiah chapter 66. If you're a part of Generations Church and have been maybe over the last year, year and a half, you know we've worked our way all the way through Isaiah, from Isaiah 1 now to Isaiah 66, uh, with a couple breaks in the middle just to kind of fill in some, some pieces and some spaces that we had. Um, But now here we are wrapping up one of the largest books in the Bible, one of the most profound prophets in the Bible, um, an amazing, amazing book. We've had uh, an incredible time in this book. And so Isaiah 66 today, we'll wrap this up. And so I want you to kind of imagine this as we finish this book, as we work through this chapter today. With this long message from God, meaning Isaiah 66. So when, when God spoke to his prophet Isaiah, a prophet being someone who speaks on behalf of God with God's authority, God's word to God's people, right? When, when God does this and he gives this, this lengthy message through Isaiah and he gives it to his people and then God, God ordains that that become a part of scripture. In other words, not only a message to that people, but a message to all people throughout all time. In fact, a message particularly to the church today, as we'll see. As God does that, if God is going to spend this much time on a big message, how important might you think that this final end, last words, how important might those be? When I I think of just any kind of... uh, Putting something together and just saying, okay, this is what I wanna say. By the time I get to the end, I'm like, I wanna make sure that I'm, I'm making my point by the end. And God is doing the same thing through Isaiah as He pushes us forward to Isaiah 66. This, this final message, this final word from God through Isaiah to us, His church, is super important today. And so I'm gonna start with a slide, uh, kind of a main idea if you're a note taker. Uh, this is on your app if you have it. By the way, I know when we ask you to check in on the app, I know a lot of times, um, like you'll be live streaming on the app, and so uh, you can't. So comment on Facebook or Vimeo or wherever we are. Um, but that's what we will do today. So uh, here's our note. Turn so the app. True worship. So God speaks through Isaiah one last message to all who profess faith in Jesus to repent from false worship and to practice true worship. We all need this today. So God speaks through Isaiah one final message. And his message is for his people to leave false worship and turn to true worship. And so I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this in this context. Consider Genesis 4. If you guys are familiar with the Bible, creation, the creation of uh, the world, the earth, everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, and then the creation of humanity. And then I zoomed in view of creation of humanity in Genesis 2. And then in Genesis 3, we have uh, a story about the fall, how sin entered into human history. Genesis 4 is the chapter with Cain and Abel. If you grew up in a church, this is a great story for kids, lots of flannel graphs, lots of images, lots of story. What we have is two brothers who come in to worship God. They come to worship God. And uh, imagine this, it's like two brothers coming to church. They're coming for the same reason. They're coming to worship in church. Cain and Abel are both going to worship God, and as they go to worship God, one worships God the way God prescribed them to worship, and one worships God the way he wants to worship God. One does what God has commanded, the other does what is convenient or what he desires. One worship is accepted, the other is rejected, and the other is rejected as God calls him to return to true worship. As Cain is called to return to true worship, he's not just rejected and pushed away. He's told, listen, I have prescribed to you how you were to worship me. The church needs to hear that today, that God has prescribed how we are to live, how we are to worship, how we are to speak, how we are to act, what we are to do. Lots of not do's, lots of things to do, but then sometimes, many times, oftentimes. The modern day, especially American church, that's our setting, so that's all we're really talking about today, the modern American church goes its own way, like the way of Cain, it goes its own way and decides how it wants to worship. And in the midst of turmoil, whether it be coronavirus, economy, racial tensions, political upheavals, all the things going on, the church tends to, under stress, under pressure, default to what it wants to do, not what God calls us to do. And so that's our setting today. True worship. God speaks through Isaiah. One last message to all who profess faith in Jesus, to repent from false worship and practice true worship. And we all need to hear this today. So that's our starting message. When you hear false worship, don't think worshiping of something else, Buddha, Allah. Don't think of false worship. Think of false worship practices even aimed at God. Let's pray and we'll get started. God, as we gather this morning, we are so grateful to be able to gather, even digitally. I know we struggle at the distance. I know we struggle not to be together. I know even this morning, it's been challenging with technical difficulties, Lord, and just getting things to work sometimes, it just throws us upside down. But God, let us be grateful that we can gather. Let us be grateful that we have the internet. Let us be grateful that we can see one another, that we can hear one another. Let us be grateful for what we have. Many Christians around the world don't even have this. When they're sick, they have to stay home and they are removed from their community. They don't have an internet, they don't have a live stream to do this. Many in the underground church, the persecuted church, if they were to gather together, could be persecuted, executed, martyred. And in America, we struggle with the fact that we have to do this at distance for a short time. Lord, help us to appreciate what we have Help us to worship you truly and fully. Help us to not look at the struggles, but to look at the graces we have in you, Lord. Jesus, thank you. You have come and lived and died and rose again, and you've done that to reconcile us to God. Thank you. We are here because of you. Holy Spirit, will you soften our hearts, and will you say these words, not me, but you, that these words might pierce the hearts of every one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 66, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So here God is speaking. He's speaking again through Isaiah, his prophet, to his people, modern day version, and as they begin to speak a little bit later, church. Think modern day church. So God is saying this, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. I created heaven and earth. What is it that you can build for me? Now, when we look at the church, and sometimes we idolize the building, the modern American church sometimes is all about the building, right? What do we have in the building? What can we do about the building? How do we gather in the building? And we miss the idea that the church is God's people whether we're gathered or scattered church worship family worship is when we gather but the church we are a people that are the church and this if if one thing that coronavirus this pandemic this social distancing the staying at home stuff if one thing has been revealed more clearly than anything it is that most churches don't know how to be a church without a building And that if we don't gather if we don't have this physical locality if we don't have this location this address that we call our own how can we be the church and it's more than just can we meet online or can we do this but it's it's more about how can I as the church or you as the church care for one another how can we be there in the absence of a formal gathering and so it's it's sometimes so caught up in what we do that we miss that being the church is what God has called us to. So God is saying, listen, I created the heaven and the earth. I gave you the very wood to build the buildings out of. I gave you, I created everything. What is it you're gonna add to? What is it you're gonna build for me that would be any better? And God is really using creation and our buildings to kind of teach us or give us a metaphor, something we understand. We know God created everything. God hung the stars in the sky, nothing, I can make, will ever rival that, and should never try. But he's using that to to remind us that he also created our faith, he created us, he created our faith, our worship practices, he gave them to us. What is it that we think we can add to those, right? So now, worship, when he talks about, well, what have you built for me? When he talks about our worship, he's using either the temple, the tabernacle, the, the church, the modern day building to remind us that As we practice our faith, we practice our faith as he created. He's creator. What he created is best. What we do is we try and add on to it, and that's never good. So here's a note for you. God chooses how we worship. God compares a church building to his creation, revealing what our efforts look like compared to God's ways to worship him, God's way to worship him. What do we add to our faith today, trying to make what God has made better? What is it that we try and add today to make it better? And I'll just give you some things. And, and, and I don't think any of these things are inherently evil necessarily, but sometimes we get caught up in them. So right now, uh, if, if, if worship, does worship need to be with a, a big band or with something engaged that have to have a lot to it, or can it just be Joe on a guitar, Joe and Chanel up here, can it be simple and is it the same? Do we, re- do we worship the same way no matter if it's small or big, no matter if it's fast or slow or loud or quiet, no matter if it's a song written in the 1800s and we call a hymn or a modern day version, if it's a psalm or something, how do we respond to it? And so we get caught up in the medium, in the the pieces that we bring to it, and oftentimes miss that it is about me proclaiming God's goodness. It is about you proclaiming God's mercies and grace over us. And sometimes we get just kind of all caught in the middle in the things we add to it and can't find our ways to worship without all that. Uh... A, a person I know who uh, is a monk, my uncle, who is a monk. Who, yes, I call my uncle. That's for another day. Anyhow, he uh, was noting he's an Orthodox Christian. So uh, without going into that, they do communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. They do it in silence. And he's noted that C- Protestant Christians, evangelical Christians, often do it with music behind. And it's just foreign to him that, that it's not a moment of silence and contemplation, but that we fill everything with noise. And I just reminded me, I don't think there's a right or a wrong necessarily, but there was a truth to it. One, that we don't often do it in silence. We get caught in that. We get nervous in that. We get anxious in that. So we fill these things. We add to them because we have to ask ourselves, is, is communion not enough for us to be engaged in the moment? Is is, is a means of grace that God has given us, that the, the celebration of Christ's body broke and his blood shed, is that not enough to engage us fully with God in that moment without anything else? And that's just a struggle. And in the church, we have just built these things, these, these ways that we do things, and sometimes we get outside of them, it throws us upside down. Sometimes small ways, maybe like music, or big ways like this. When we have to gather digitally, I've talked to so many people and the struggle right now of staying close and connected to God, not just to one another, is present right now in this distancing version of church. And so we have some answers for that, some things we want to do differently. You'll hear from us this week, but just, just imagine that for a minute is god's word is worship is prayer not enough even if it's at distance do we have preferences sure but is it not enough even at distance to do the things that god has called us to do that's what god is saying i've created everything and i've given you this what can you add to it verse 2 all these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be declares the lord but this is the one to whom i will look He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles in my word. So let's define what we're talking about, right? God has created how we are to live life, right? Living in other ways is sin. God has created how we are to be forgiven of sin, right? Any other ways are just adding sin to sin. God has created how we are to thank him. Any other ways are sin. And so God has given us this and he's saying, what are you adding to it? Now I'm not suggesting that music behind communion is sin, but I am suggesting there's a flaw or a problem in us when we can't seem to engage in communion without it. Or church is when worship songs are sung. Church is when God's word is proclaimed, when prayer is corporate. When I say word corporate, it clearly requires some definition. That we are a corporate body meeting together right now but it is digitally. And, I, and I'll give you this. I want to be back together too. There is something about being together. But if we can't do this at distance, is the, is the flaw not in us somewhere? Is there something not missing when it's not enough to worship God, when it's not enough to hear God's word proclaimed, when it's not enough? And, and admittedly, we want to be back together. And admittedly, sometimes we have tech issues and it doesn't come across as well. Is there not something in us that is striving for the things that we add on? God says this, here's the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who is humble, contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So as we kind of pivot to the things we've added to our faith and we start looking at some new ones as we wrap up Isaiah, let me ask you this question, is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word trembles at god's word is that what the american church looks like today one of the biggest problems we have is when the christians american christians post on social media about positions and disagreements is this what they sound like humble and contrite in spirit trembling at god's word i'm just going to answer the question and say no as an observer of christians online All day long, every day, what I would say is we're not known for our humility. We're not known for being contrite. We're not not known for fearing God, but but rather putting forth our own ideas and wants and desires and positions. We might even sometimes say that the things that we're championing are because we fear God, But we miss all the other things that God has called us to, like the way we speak, like humility. Isaiah is making, uh, uh, there's no disclarity here that God is looking for the humble and contrite in spirit, someone who trembles at God's word. So you can maybe tremble at God's word, maybe you're fearing God only, but are you humble and contrite? And I think that's missing in modern American Christianity. It's missing in our social dialogue. Right now, we don't have a lot of getting together. So social media is a lot of our communication. And our communication as seen by the world is lacking and broken. It's arrogant. It's dissenting. It's, di- it's divisive, it's argumentative, it is not unified, it is not ubiquitous, anyway, it is not loving, it is not kind, it is not humble, it is not contrite, and because of all those things, I would say it does not fear God. Verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Here's what he's doing. God is comparing something that is true worship to something that is false worship. He who slaughters an ox, verse 3, is like one who kills a man. So slaughtering an ox, true worship. Killing a man, sin. He who sacrifices a lamb, true worship, is one like who breaks a dog's neck, sin. He who presents a grain offering, worship, is like one who offers pig's blood, sin. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, true worship, is like one who blesses an idol, sin. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, right? As God compares true worship with false worship or sin, God is pointing out that the one who does this is like the one who does that. The one who offers true worship, the prescribed worship, is like the one who's offering to idols. What he's saying is that all of the people, the people that proclaim to be mine, even though they go through the motions, are just like the world around them. Isaiah's number one critique of people that profess to have a faith in God, modern day Christians, followers of Jesus. Isaiah's number one critique of people who profess to follow God is that they look just like the world around them, the unsaved, not following God world around them. He said this of Judaism 2,800 years ago. He said he would say this to us. God is using this to speak to us, his church today in 2020 and say listen you look just like the world around you you're equally caught up in the politics of the world just like the world around you you're equally striving for human solutions just like the world around you you are equally divisive angry argumentative on social media just like the world around you you look like everyone else without any distinction that you're mine it's like looking at a family photo and you're looking down and you look at the family you see the family resemblance you see all this, but if you were to look at a family photo, and you're like, nobody looks like anybody else in that picture. That's what God is saying. Like, you look like everyone else, but you don't look family. You don't look like family. You don't look like I've called you to, you don't live the way I've called you to live. You live like everybody else who doesn't worship me. Verse 4, I will also choose harsh treatment for them, and bring their fears upon them because when I called no one answered when I spoke they did not listen but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight I want you to hear that they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight they chose to worship their own way they chose to pursue how to follow God how to follow Jesus their own way It's like packing up and saying, you know what, man? I don't like this church over here because they're hypocrites, and I don't like this church over here because they're hypocrites, so I'm just going to grab my Bible and go off into the woods, just me and my family, and I'm going to follow Jesus my way. That's what we're talking about. Saying, you know what? There is a way to worship. There is God's prescribed way to live as a follower of Jesus. And he says, but they did what was evil and chose that in which I did not delight. Remember, Cain and Abel. Abel brings his best Just like God has called him to. Cain brings what is convenient, what is acceptable by his standards to give away. Abel does what God says, Cain does what he wants. God accepts Abel's, God rejects Cain's and calls him to repentance. Isaiah is saying that largely now to the church, largely to the people of God through Isaiah saying, listen, you're doing it your way, not my way. You're living this way like the rest of the world, even though you profess to be mine. So, judgment is coming, proclaims the Lord. He says, They did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. Meaning, the people who said they were worshiping God were living like everyone else. The gospel is, is one that, that, that goes against this. The, the gospel is this thing it says, God created you, designed you, loves you, made you, knows how you work knows how you were built to live and, and and created how you were to glorify God. God made you. Creation, right? That you are created by God, designed with a purpose, designed a specific way. But sin entered into human history the fall right but that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that we have inherited sin and then when it came our turn we added to the sin of the world in other words we did the things God said not to do we didn't do the things God said to do and even in the church then we didn't turn and repent and worship the way God has called us to so we've added to the sin of the world and the result of sin is death whether that means spiritual death or even death to our human bodies. If sin had never entered into into human history, there'd be no things like coronavirus or poverty or racism. Those are all the result of a broken world, the world we live in and the world we've contributed to. Even we, the church today, who know better have contributed to that, that we contribute to the sin in the world. And because of that, we went our own way. That is absolutely the definition of sin. It is not doing God's way, but doing our way. It's really saying, God, I know you know best, but right now in this moment, I know better than you, and I'm going to go my way. And because of that, there's this separation between humanity and God. And so God desires that relationship. So God enters into the human story. God, the son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, becomes flesh. The uncreated, eternal, from the beginning, creator, Jesus, enters into human history, puts on flesh, and lives the life we are called to live, lives according to the way God designed us to live. And in that becomes the perfect sacrifice, for all of humanity who has sinned. And so Jesus goes and he dies our death. The death we deserve that he did not. And he does it in our place. This, he sacrifices himself. He substitutes himself. His penalty, our penalty taken out on him. And Jesus dies for our sins. In Jesus' death, our sin is forgiven. And in Jesus' resurrection, as he raises to life again, three days later, we find new life. And and God says, in this, that I will raise you up out of death, or I'll raise like baptism, I will raise you out of the waters into new life. And because of that, Jesus gives us this new life. Jesus ascends back to heaven and fills us with his very spirit. The same spirit the Bible says that raised Jesus from the dead lives now in you and I, if we are. Followers of Jesus, when baptized and follow him, that we have that spirit. And then God says, now... Let me, now that I've redeemed you, now that I've repaired the problem, let me restore you to the way I created you to be. Now it's, it's time to follow me and it's time to shed the ways of the world and follow me. And that is the gospel, that we would believe that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, that we would place our faith in him to cover our sin, to reconcile us to God, to give us new life, to empower us to live again. And in that, we then respond and begin to by faith follow. Matthew 16 says, then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? Let me just kind of summarize that for you. Jesus says, listen, I have done all this to cover your sin. I've lived a sinless life. I've died a vicarious death for you. I've taken your penalty. I've been raised from the grave to give you new life. I've filled you with my spirit. Now, I did this for you to respond to me. And a right response is to no longer pursue self, like the rest of the world around us, no longer to pursue the things of this world, no longer be consumed with the things that everybody else is consumed with, but rather to be filled with the spirit, to be consumed with Jesus and to follow after him. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, Jesus says, and follow me. That we would lay down this life and that we would follow Jesus, whatever that might mean for us. That we would lay down sin, yes, but we would also lay down the concerns and the solutions of this world. Voting in the next right president is not the solution for this world. Following Jesus is the solution for this world. Following Jesus is the solution for this nation. If the church would rise up and be different from the culture around us, people would see an alternative that would work. People would see a solution in Christ. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So he says, listen, there are some that are listening. There are some that want, that to, that want to follow. He says, your brothers hate you and cast you out for my name's sake. And they have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who we put to shame. Right? He says, there are those who profess faith, but push you out, reject you because you're truly following God and not following the world. He says, listen, that's going on. That's alive in the church today. Verse 6, the sound of an uproar from a city, a sound of the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. So now, as Isaiah winds this story up, he is one last time calling out the problem in the faithful people, people that profess to be followers of God. He's saying, here's the problem. You still look like the world around you. I'm calling you to something different. I'm calling you to pleasing me, pleasing me only. Do this. Follow me. I have given you what you need. I've given you. In fact, the life I have called you to is better than your life. You just need to leave that and follow me. And then God is reminding us that also judgment is coming. Judgment will come on those who profess faith but don't follow God, just like those who don't profess faith and don't follow God. It is living in Christ that saves us, following God, that, that, that it is Jesus who saves us, and that we know that as we begin to live for Jesus, we see the result. We see the implication as we are living different. Our, our works don't save us, but our works show us what we truly are inside. That as we are transformed by Jesus, you will see that on the outside. You will see us living distinctly, differently from the world. So now God says, reminder that judgment is coming. And so I just want to give like kind of a a little caveat. When people today talk about end times, they often get caught up a lot in signs and symbols and prophecies and things, and try and create charts and graphs and timelines of what will happen between now and the end. Many of those things are not talked about in scripture. Many of those things are added into things that will happen all the time and people keep looking. Even when Jesus says, listen, earthquakes, wars, rumors of war, those aren't signs of the ends. Those aren't, that's not it, don't worry about that. Then people hear wars and rumors of wars and then they go, oh, it's the end, right? When Jesus begins to tell us about the end, when God speaks to his prophet Isaiah about the end, he goes from what we're doing to the end. He starts right into judgment kingdom eternity all that's going to take place now you can get caught up in all the things in the middle but it is a modern American distraction to be constantly trying to figure out is this the mark of the beast is this this is this that is this the one rule it is a distraction of the American church when we get all caught up in what's going to happen between now and then we lose sight of the mission we've been called to to be Christ's people today in the midst of turmoil we lose sight of what we're called to. We lose sight of who we're called to be and how we're called to live because we're so caught up trying to figure out something that Jesus repeatedly says, don't worry about. Don't worry about that. Verse 7, he says, uh, Isaiah says this, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. So there's two important things I want you to hear as we move through this. One, the end will happen immediately. Jesus tells parables, like there are a bunch of people out in the field, some go, the others stay. That's it. That's the end, right? He says, here we are. One, You'll be doing this, and all of a sudden, it's over. You're standing in front of Jesus. That's how Jesus portrays it. The end will happen immediately. Why is that important? Again, because the American church is so distracted on end times theories and prophecies, many of which are not biblical, many of which have written books about and movies about that are just not biblical and that are a distraction, that take us off the mission we're called to, that we are to be Christ church, Christ people today, here, that people can turn to, that people can look to. The second is that the end fixes what was broken. Let me say it again. The end fixes what was broken. It says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son, I want you to remember the creation fall narrative right before the Cain and Abel story. Genesis 3 says this, to the woman, God said, this is after sin. God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and you shall bring forth children. Here's part of the curse. Adam inherits death. The serpent is cursed. All this stuff takes place and God turns to the woman and he gives her two things. One, your pain shall be multiplied in childbirth. You shall have a painful time delivering children. And the others, you will be at enmity with your husband. You will each try and rule over one another. This is the one I want to look at, that you will have pain and childbirth. Look at what Isaiah says. God says in the end, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain come upon her, she delivered a son. This imagery is to teach us that God will fix what is broken, all the things destroyed by sin, all the things that are upon us because of a A history of sin, a culture of sin, our lives of sin, all of those things, all at once, are fixed. Yes, those are things that Jesus wants to work out of us today. He wants to repair in us today some of these things that we have done and caused. brokennesses in us. But some will remain, like pain and childbirth will remain until the kingdom is, Jesus takes over, judgment happens, and all at once now we get an image of all that was broken being fixed. Verse 8, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? Note that we go from a woman having a son to a nation coming out of it. Jesus is telling, or God through Isaiah is telling about the kingdom that Jesus told us about. Say, listen, in one moment, here's what happens. Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as Zion, as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Says the Lord, shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? The end, the kingdom, eternity will take shape in in a moment, in an instant. Jesus says, I will fix what is broken. I will heal what needs healing. I will redeem what is broken. I will bring it all to be. And God says these words, shall I I bring them to this point and not do it? Shall I do all these things that that secure us a future? Shall I bring a child through, through a virgin? Shall I nail my son to a cross? Will I raise my son from the dead? Will I pour out my spirit on those who believe? Will I do all that and not keep my word about the final things? God says, I will do that. I will bring us to that point, and I will make it happen. Here's a note for you, fixating on the end. The American church is so focused on what happens before the end that so much of us have lost sight of what God is promising. Not only do we lose sight of where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing, but we lose sight of what God is promising. The result is fear of signs, governments, and figures that we miss the promise of the kingdom. Every time Jesus proclaims eternity, it sounds like something I want to be a part of. When Isaiah says, listen, I'm gonna fix what's broken, I want in. I wanna be in this thing, I I wanna stop having this. I I wanna stop the pain of today, I wanna be in this. Now, do I hope that happens right now or or do I still hope that there are others who come to faith? Of course I hope there are others to come to faith. But I'm not afraid of the end, I am anticipatory. I am eager, I am looking forward to Jesus making everything right. And the modern American church is caught up in this thing, and there's real fear about what's taking place, and do we do this, or do we not do this? Oh my gosh, there's a microchip, whoa, here we go, right? I mean, all this stuff is real. And people are losing their minds about it, and they've lost sight of the promises of God. They've lost sight of who we are called to be, how we are called to live, and the nations we are called to reach, which we'll see in a minute. Here's what happens when Jesus is asked about the end, his final words as he gets ready to ascend. Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Will you you begin to rebuild? Will you begin to bring everything you've promised into play? Will you fix everything that's broken? That's what they're asking him. And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's not for you to know. He says it all throughout the Gospels. He says it on his way ascending back to his throne. It's not for you to know. Stop worrying about it, he says. But you, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you'll be my witnesses here, there, there, everywhere. You'll be my people. Don't worry about the other stuff be my people do what i've called you to do. be my witnesses go tell others about me live the way i've called you to live don't worry about peripheral things they're going to happen with or without you you can't stop them you can't speed them up you can't you can't do anything don't worry the church needs to set that aside and not worry it is not for us to know it is not what most of scripture is talking about most of scripture is telling us how to live and live faithfully today all of Isaiah calling us to live, live faithfully, reminding us of the promises that will come. They will come whether or not we figure them all out or don't. They will come whether there's a rapture or no rapture. They will come whether the world gets better or gets worse, whether there's a thousand year reign or no thousand year reign. It'll come. Jesus will do it. But will we be faithful in the meantime? Will we be faithful? Will we live distinctly, differently from the world? Will we be the witnesses others need to see? Or will we be what we're currently doing? and just looking like the rest of the world and arguing online. God is calling us to something better. God is calling us to something more. God is calling us to something magnificent. Will we take that step? Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad for her, all you who love her. Just so you know, when they look at future Jerusalem, they're also talking about the church, the church on earth. Listen to how it's both good and bad simultaneously. He says, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her. So rejoice with you, all who love the church. Rejoice with you, all who struggle with the church. All who see the flaws in the church. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her counseling, her consoling, excuse me, her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Here's this image, like a young mother nursing her child. That child has a flawed mother. I don't care who the mom is and who the child is. That child has a flawed mom. But that mom nurses that child perfectly. That, That mom gives everything to console and feed and strengthen that church. That's that child. That's the church today. The church in all its mess, in all its brokenness, in all of it, God still uses the church to console, to strengthen, to build, to grow his people. God doesn't then leave the church behind like, ooh, that thing's a mess. I'm going to go over here. We don't leave the church. We're called to be the church, be in the church. In fact, if we were better, the church would be better. That if we were more focused on God, the church would come around. The only reason that the church is filled with hypocrisy and sin is because we're a part of it. The sin's in us, not in Scripture, not in Jesus, not in the building. It's in us. We are the problem. That's why we don't talk a lot about what everybody else should do in the world and why they're all sinful and going to hell. We talk about why we're broken and not glorifying God. We, the people who profess Christ. Because it's about us. If we change, then the world will see us. In fact, let me say that a better way. If we change, then the world will see Jesus and they will want Jesus. Because there's nothing about Jesus not to want. And if they saw Jesus, if they saw Christ in us, they would want what we have. And if they, want, if they got that, if they were able to receive it, if they were able to be consoled at the breast of a mother. If they were able to find their strength in the church because we have changed, then more people would change. Then the world could be changed. And then maybe the kingdom could come. Maybe then Jesus would fix everything that's broken. Maybe then. Be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her. The church may be imperfect, but we are the church. Let's fix us. That will fix the church. So, a note for you. Our problem today, Isaiah calls out the self-involved, infighting church to turn and be a hope for the nations instead of focusing on our discomfort of worshiping at distance. We need to rejoice in God who hasn't changed. We need to be the solution for others. We need to turn and be joyful. We need to be a different people. We need to not lament that we're at distance, though we want to be back together. We need to champion the fact that we still have a way to meet, that we're not being persecuted for our faith. And, and I don't want to drift down that road. We're not being persecuted for our faith. Take that idea of a mask and, and no singing in public or whatever, and take that to a place where Christianity is being persecuted and martyred and killed, and, and just reflect on what persecution looks like for a minute. And let me just say this, we're not being persecuted. Are we being challenged? Sure, we're not being persecuted. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us look to God. Let us be satisfied in that. Let us not fixate and look at what we don't have. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the nation is like an overflowing stream. You shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip. Here's what he's saying. When the church turns and focuses on me, here's what I'm going to do. I'll extend peace to her. The glory of the nation is like an overflowing stream. You shall nurse and be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. Verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem, right? In humanity, in the church, in a spirit-filled, in a Jesus-focused, in a a God-ordained church. We will find our peace. Verse 14, You shall see me, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And in the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Enemies, those who are outside, those who are against, those who won't get on board. Let God show his indignation. That doesn't need to be for us. Verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And by a sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves. To go into the gardens following one in the midst. Eating pig's flesh. Listen to verse 17. And the abomination and mice shall come to an end together declares the Lord. Those who sanctify and purify themselves. Those who go through the ritual practices. They show up for church. They put something in the offering. They attend a Bible study. They go through it, but their heart's somewhere else. He says, they're eating pig's flesh. They're out there embracing the world. He says, they shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. Verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations in tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. God's judgment is right. He says, I know their thoughts. You get to see their actions. Barely do you ever get to see their heart revealed through all their actions; they can cover that up. I know their thoughts. I know their heart. I judge them truly. Verse 19: and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pole, and to Lud, and draw Lud—that's where my people come from. Lud Ing Town. No, I'm just totally making that up. All right, and to Pole the bow to Tubal and Javan to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Here's what he says, I will send from them. I will destroy the ones that don't belong, and I will send from the remainder. I will send from the survivors, the true followers, the true church. I will send them, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Note that there's always this turning of the church towards the world not towards one another, not infighting, not even just clinging to one another, hanging on for dear life until the end, but that we are so consoled with Christ, that we are so strengthened by the church, that we are so ready for everything else, that we are out into the world bringing everyone else the message of hope, of faith, of Jesus, that we are made strong and we go out and we become witnesses for Jesus. Verse 20, "...and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord." Many will come to faith. On horses and in chariots and in litters and mules and dromedaries. I had to look that up. That's a camel, by the way. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, that clean vessel, just as the Israelites bring an offering in a clean vessel, it's a message in a clean vessel, that we are to be that clean vessel, that we are to be pure, that we are to obey God, that we are the we are the ones that carry that message that we are to be pure. Verse 21, and some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. So what does a renewed and redeemed church look like? It'd be a church that sees the world as mission. Jesus sent out the church to, read, to reach the world. Today, the church in America is declining from self-centeredness and division. True worship means laying down our self-interest and focusing outward towards the lost. Today, the church has become all about me. It's all about you. It's all about me. It's all about our preferences, our likes and our dislikes. It's all about, well, that person on the other side of the room did this, and I don't like that. Or this, we changed this leader, or this thing, or this happened. It's all about us. A real true redeemed church is fixated on Christ. It is is focused on God, is empowered by the Spirit, and is reaching out to the world. Verse 22, for as a new heavens and a new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. As Jesus looks into his kingdom, In the gospels, we're told how he paints this picture of every tongue, tribe and nation worshiping together. God does the same thing through Isaiah. He looks forward to the kingdom of Christ and all nations are coming. All nations are worshiping together, all people. And then all these people are gathered together and they're gathered around one thing. It's about what they have in common, not how they're different. Today and our, especially in America in a political season, it it is politics of division. It's about this color or this demographic or this gender or that or whatever. It's everything divided. And yet in the kingdom, we see every tongue, every tribe, every nation. We see everyone gathered around Jesus. It's about what they have in common, not what separates them. Verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The final verse in all of Isaiah looks out and eternity has already begun. Eternity, the kingdom has already been consummated and is in full, is, is, is in full uh, present. It is, it is fully engaged. Jesus is reigning. It says from new moon to new moon, from month to month, from Sabbath to Sabbath, from week to week, everything is right. All is well because the kingdom has taken hold. Because all of sin, all of the brokenness, all of the curse has gone away and and has been judged by God. And now Jesus reigns present in his people in the kingdom. And here's what we see. This final verse looks out, and from eternity you can see hell, alive and active, people suffering. It says, whom the worm shall not die, and the fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is one of the most challenging verses in all of this book. There's so much that goes on in here. But this begs the question, okay, in eternity do you get to see those who didn't follow Jesus? And I don't even know what to say with that. But we get two images as we close the book today. One is the kingdom where Christ is reigning. One is where people everywhere, everything is right. Where all the people are gathered, everyone is unified. And there is refreshment and there is life and there is joy and there is no sin. And the other image we're reminded of is an eternal suffering for those who don't listen, for those who don't turn. That in the end, there's two things. In the end, there's two options. And the gospel gives us two choices, either believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, or don't. There's no half step. There's no, I get to say I follow Jesus, but I really don't. But I show up on Sundays and I give a little money and I attend this Bible study, but I don't, my heart is not given to following Jesus. There's only everything I own, everything I have, everything I believe in is Jesus or anything else. And that's where Isaiah leaves us with two stark realities. There is either life eternally with Jesus or there is life eternally without. There is either a life everlasting or a death everlasting. So a note for us, being focused on eternity, having an eternal perspective helps navigate hard seasons and put them in perspective. Instead of being caught up with distractions, we need to return to true worship and live the calling Jesus has given us as His church. An eternal view, a a view on eternity, some some focus, some something to remind us is that that's what it's all about. The turning and living now, navigating the hard times that we're in now—it's about everything. It's about eternity. Everything now points us to that and all of the struggles, all of the problems we've taken away now, live our life that we've been called now as the church, live our life to the nations now. Let me give you two quick verses and I will pray for us. Romans 12 says this, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. Paul saying, I appeal to the church to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your whole life, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I appeal to the church, Paul says, that you would give everything, your whole life, to following Jesus. And then the author of Hebrews says this Consider him, meaning Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We need to hear that that's persecution, that when we die for our faith, that's persecution. But right now, don't give up. Don't lose sight. Don't miss the big prize. Don't miss all that God has for us, both now and eternally. Don't miss it by being too myopically focused on today, on ourselves, on our culture on the world that we live in. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came and entered into our story and did it perfectly. You give us life. Jesus, you came and you lived fully the way God has called us to live. And you did it here. You did it to give us that life through your spirit. You you did it so that we could be different, so that we could not only see it, but that we could inherit it. Forgive us that like the people of Isaiah's day, we have the same confession. When Isaiah sat and he saw a glimpse of you, Jesus, he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm going to die because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live with a people of unclean lips. Our words, our actions, our deeds, what we say is our sin, Isaiah said. And I would say the same today, Jesus, forgive us Forgive your church because we speak and act like everyone else who is not your church. Help us to be changed. Our hope is that from your throne comes that that burning coal to fix us, to redeem us, to heal us. You have given us that. You've given your life and your spirit to empower change. As we wrap up this book, as we, as we kind of put a, a period at the end of this long series, this long protracted message about how you want to bring about a beautiful eternity, you remind us that it comes through us and that we are called to sacrifice what we want today for you. And what we inherit is greater than anything we could possibly lose. In fact, what we inherit today is better than what we give up. Nevertheless, eternity, where you fix everything that is broken, where even the pain of childbirth is that image of all that has been started from sin all the way back that we have inherited. All of it goes away. Jesus, you have already lived and died and rose again. You have accomplished everything. And just as Isaiah said, what will I have all the way go to labor and not have a child? No, you will bring to completion what you have started. You will bring us eternity and it will be right. Jesus, help us to trust in you, to live for you, to pursue you, to follow you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.